Of course, while witchcraft, goddess worship, and other forms of pagan spirituality served to undergird and empower the abortion industry, the vast majority of its supporters have no conscious interest in and likely would even condemn such forms of occult spirituality. No matter, as long as they sacrifice or support the sacrifice of children to the idols of convenience, they are, whether they realize it or not, ensnared by the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. Yeah, it's called bloodletting, bloodlust. You feed off of each other, cut each other with the blades. I wanted to become fully decayed in mind, soul, body, everything. I wanted to be darkness. I can't generalize about Wiccans or Pagans or New Age people, but definitely among the group my mother was involved with. Um, some, were, some considered themselves Wiccan, some considered themselves Buddhist, but they all spoke of abortion as a sacrament, as a sacred rite, as something that was sacred and special to women. And a few of them would openly mention it as child sacrifice and blood sacrifice in general. Menstrual blood was considered sacred and there were rituals done with that as well. In 92, they were worried that if George Bush got reelected and there was a Republican Congress that there would be a lot of restrictions on abortion, that Roe versus Wade might even be overturned, and that the abortion industry might have to go underground. As it was before Roe versus Wade, there were a lot of women doing underground abortions. So they felt this was something that was important to teach and learn and practice on each other. So. They had a party at our house, my mother and some of the women from the clinic and some of the women from her NOW chapter. She was vice president of our local NOW around that time. And so they, they came over and brought um, it's mayonnaise jars and tubing and very crude suction pumps is how you do menstrual extraction. And other than that, it was sort of just like a party. I mean, my dad and I set up, you know, stock pots to boil the equipment in between uses and I you know, set up a table to serve drinks and hors d'oeuvres. And the women all, set, we set up plastic sheets in the living room. My dad and I mostly stayed in the kitchen because mom and dad were arguing about whether or not I'd have to participate in the party or not. My dad eventually won and he, he and I went out to dinner in a movie and didn't come back till late that night. But um, basically the women all, once they were all there, they all got naked. That was my, uh, that was my big issue with it is I was, you know, I was how old, 13 at the time, and I was really, I didn't want to be naked in front of a bunch of people. I, I've always been kind of naturally conservative and modest about things, and I was freaked out at the thought of being naked in front of like a dozen women. But they all got naked and took turns doing the menstrual extraction procedure on each other. The jars started, to, I remember the jars filling up with blood in the hallway. The, the jars would fill with blood and they'd get another jar. And they were, they were saving the blood. And you know, I walked past a couple, mostly I stayed in the kitchen with my dad and they would bring in, you know, this, these tubes and things with blood and dad and I would, you know, rinse them and put them in the pots to sterilize. 
to be reused and I, I just it was really it's I mean it, it's difficult to talk about it was strange and terrifying they were playing you know the goddess music on the stereo the whole time and the few times I walked I walked by to go to the bathroom or go to my room for something I could see them in there you know a dozen or so naked women starting to get covered with blood they were smearing the blood on each other in patterns and symbols and mostly the blood was getting saved and the you know clinic people took it with them when they left and the next day you know when my dad and I got home it was really late at night and the bloody sheets were still everywhere my mother had gone to bed and we just we folded up all the bloody stuff and we drove it to some like unlocked dumpster behind an office building and threw it in and drove away just we just kind of tried to put it out of our minds my dad was never didn't my dad was still nominally Christian he didn't go to church but he still considered himself a Christian and he was he, he just kind of withdrew during all this and eventually left. As Jesus said to a people who were even convinced that they were on God's side, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. But there's another spiritual dynamic feeding into the abortion industry that we should also consider. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw a growing interest in Eastern mysticism, pagan spirituality, and even occultism, particularly among the liberal elite in the West. Enlightenment humanism and higher criticism, the field of textual analysis that increasingly questioned the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, all created a spiritual vacuum into which flowed all manner of alternative and esoteric beliefs, many of a sexual nature. For example, renowned explorer Sir Richard Francis Burton found the exotic sexual practices of the Orient fascinating and looked for ways to bring them back to the UK in order to challenge the prevailing Victorian morality. In 1883, he published the Kama Sutra, at the time hardly known even in India, and turned it into the urtext of supposed sexual enlightenment. Ananga Ranga, The Perfume Garden, an essay sympathetic to homosexuality, semi-legitimizing perversion, and launching a vigorous public debate about purity and pornography, desire and deviance, state regulation, and personal freedom. This, along with other subversive efforts, prepared the way for a rash of academics and clinicians who pioneered the so-called science of sexology. Far too often, this new science sought to normalize an ever-increasing variety of sexual behavior while ignoring and even attacking God's standards on the subject. It was also quick to embrace the social philosophy of eugenics, a new field and term that was first formulated by Sir Francis Galton in 1883. Drawing on the recent work of his half-cousin, Charles Darwin, Galton proposed that the human race could be improved by a sort of guided natural selection, encouraging the reproduction of some people while discouraging others. The latter category initially consisted of people with gross genetic and mental deficiencies, 
But gradually, some individuals and governments, including Americas, expanded it to include the forced sterilization of the poor, the handicapped, even certain races and ethnicities. Eugenics also opened the door for abortion, initially for babies with severe handicaps or who were products of rape, where the tendency to rape was seen at the time as an inheritable characteristic. But gradually, in some countries, again, most notably in America, abortion became accepted for almost any baby and for any reason. And while eugenics is today almost universally condemned as a socio-scientific theory, its stepchild, abortion on demand, is alive and well. To take as just one example of this brave new world of scientific progressivism, let's consider the first sex congress held in Berlin in 1921. The World League for Sexual Reform was led by three pioneers in the field of sexology from Switzerland, England, and Germany. August Farrell had grown up in a pious Calvinistic home. Early on, he developed religious doubts and at 16 refused to be confirmed as a Christian. He spent the rest of his life attacking biblical standards, what he called, quote, religious mysticism concerning human sexuality. An ardent socialist and eugenicist, in 1905, Farrell authored The Sexual Question, the first book to provide a comprehensive treatment of human sexuality from both biological and sociological perspectives. In it and other writings, Farrell championed homosexuality, including homosexual marriage, the decriminalization of incest and bestiality, and was among the first to advocate abortion in the case of rape, danger to the mother's health, mental illness, and similar contingencies. At a time when almost everyone viewed abortion as an immoral and criminal act, his was a very groundbreaking position. Pavlok Ellis, a British sexologist and advocate for eugenics, wrote Sexual Inversion, the first English medical textbook on homosexuality. In it, he advocated the normalization of same-sex relationships, including consensual acts between men and boys. A fan of famed atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and Fabian socialist and gay activist Edward Carpenter, Ellis authored a book on the two men, calling them, quote, modern seers. He also advocated the use of psychotropic drugs, for example, in his essay, Mescal, A New Artificial Paradise. In his personal life, he married a lesbian and practiced open marriage, including as just one of his lovers, Margaret Sanger. Magnus Hirschfeld was a secularized Jew, eugenicist, socialist, and homosexual who was the primary force behind the decriminalization of homosexuality and turning Germany and particularly Berlin, into a worldwide epicenter for the gay lifestyle. Germany at the time was also a hotbed of occultism, a revival that, just by the way, featured heavily in the formation of the SS, National Socialism, and Hitler's Third Reich. Hirschfeld co-founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, the first homosexual rights organization, 
Another co-founder, Max Spohr, was a publisher who not only printed Hirschfields and other lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender publications, he was also responsible for many of the occult texts that helped drive the revivals of occultism in Germany, France, and the UK. Around the same time, Aleister Crowley was making a name for himself as the Beast 666 and the wickedest man in the world. Taking the tantric sex introduced by Sir Richard Burton and the occult ideas that were in the air at the time, Crowley combined them with Nietzsche's will to power and his concept of the overman or superman, who by force of will and intellect is able to transcend the feeble Christian values of good and evil. The result was a witch's brew of unimaginably perverse sexual activity and occult rituals he called sex magic and that brought forth his most famous axiom, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. As we've already seen, the Bible says that there's no new thing under the sun. Crowley's newfangled law is just a regurgitation of what Adam and Eve fell for in the garden. You shall be as God, determining for yourself what is good and evil. Crowley simply took the essence of the primary worldview that was circulating in and through the sexual, scientific, and religious revolutions of the early 20th century and codified it as a religious axiom. When it comes to expressing yourself sexually, forget God. Do what thou wilt. As regards perfecting the human race or its social and economic systems, don't fret about what the Bible says. Do what you think is best need religion, a higher power, some form of spirituality to scratch the transcendental itch we're all seen to be born with? Believe whatever you want to believe. Inconvenienced by an unwanted pregnancy? Do what thou wilt. Unlike most of his contemporaries, Crowley, like Nietzsche, had the intellectual honesty, or at least the nerve, to call this worldview precisely what it was according to scripture. Satanic, beastly, devilish, antichrist. A half century later, his American era parent, Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, said precisely the same thing. But I can do anything that I want to. I can pursue any kind of lustful desires that I might feel. I can uh, engage in any activities that are so-called sinful activities and not really worry about any ecumenical councils making it right for me to do these things. If you're going to be a sinner, be the best sinner on the block. If you're going to do something that's naughty, do it, and realize that you're doing something naughty and enjoy it. And so, while witchcraft and goddess worship are a major conduit for the demonic energies that swirl in and through the abortion movement, there is another, more masculine component as well, good old-fashioned do what thou wilt, Satanism. And back to Crowley. Aldous Huxley famously dined with him, and it was rumored that the old beast took the opportunity to turn him on to peyote. Not only did the famed author of Brave New World 
later romanticized the emerging drug culture by writing Doors of Perception. He also wrote the preface to Birth Control Methods by Australian sexologist and closet homosexual Norman Hare. A colleague of Ellis and Hirschfield's and an attendee of the World Sex Congress in 1921, Hare, like the others, was a staunch supporter of gay rights and the eugenics movement. But even more interesting and significant is Crowley's connection to perhaps the 20th century's most influential sexologist, Alfred Kinsey, founder of the Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at Indiana University, now called the Kinsey Institute. Kinsey, like his European counterparts, set out to normalize all manner of deviant sexuality under the guise of objective science. Bisexual and with a penchant for masochism, Kinsey encouraged group sex among his graduate students and filmed sex acts in the attic of his home under the guise of research. Toward the end of his life, Kinsey, along with avant-garde filmmaker and Crowley disciple Kenneth Onger, visited the great beast at his lair at the Thelema Abbey in Sicily. Onger later observed, Kinsey was obsessed with obtaining the great beast's day-to-day -day sex diaries. To obtain grant monies and maintain the support of the university, Kinsey needed the excuse of research to validate his 24 hours a day obsession with sex. That the man who perhaps more than any other was responsible for the, quote, legitimization of sexual perversion in the latter half of the 20th century, was both a pervert and a fan of the century's most notable occultist, is a fact that should be shouted from the housetops, as well as his connection to the abortion industry. In April of 1955, 16 months before he died, Kinsey attended a clandestine conference on the abortion issue at the Arden House in Harriman, New York. Sponsored by Planned Parenthood and the New York Academy of Medicine, a report from the conference was published three years later. Edited by Planned Parenthood's president, Dr. Mary Calderon, abortion in the United States was the first serious apologetic on abortion rights. Kinsey was quoted as the leading scientific authority at the conference citing data from his questionable research suggesting that illegal abortions were very common and dangerous, while therapeutic abortion, abortion performed by a doctor, posed minimal health risks. In other words, legalizing abortion made perfect medical sense. Pregnancy, Birth, and Abortion, published the same year by three Kinsey Institute researchers and dedicated to Kinsey, made essentially the same argument. Together, these books were a first major strike against America's abortion laws and provided the so-called scientific support for the prestigious American Law Institute's position on abortion. Codified in their 1959 draft of the Model Penal Code, the proposed law allowed for elective abortions in case of rape, incest, fetal deformity, and threats to the mother's physical or mental health. Regarding rape and incest, some people make an exception for that, but if we really believe that a human life begins at the moment of conception, then how can we say that someone who was conceived by virtue of somebody else's sin is less worthy of life than somebody who is conceived in any other way? It's not the child's fault with regards to rape and incest. 
and we don't undo one tragedy by compounding it with a greater tragedy. Death never overcomes adversity. Life always triumphs from a personal perspective as well. My own family has experienced both rape and incest where my father raped my sister. And it's obviously a tragic experience for anyone, certainly when it happens in a family member or when it happens to anybody. But rather than choose death, she chose life. And as a result, my niece was born. And my niece grew up and she was married and she gave birth to another daughter. And both of them have now graduated from high school. So I have two generations that have come from a tragedy. I could never look at my nieces and say that it would be better for you to have been killed for something that you didn't do. And neither would my sister ever reconsider that decision to choose life. When you choose life, that's always the right choice. Well, most people think of Roe v. Wade because that was the first decision. But there was a companion decision that followed right up after it, again in 1973. Roe v. Wade said that the state of Texas could not limit a woman's right to have an abortion because of privacy under the 14th Amendment. But Roe v. Wade, in their attempt, the judge's attempt to be a little more reasonable, put a limit. You couldn't kill a child after that child was viable. Along came Doe v. Bolton. And most people have never heard of Doe v. Bolton, and they are under the illusion that you can't kill a child when it is viable. You can kill a child up to nine months, a minute before that child would be naturally born. And that's what Doe v. Bolton did. It took away all the little safeguards that Roe v. Wade had, their companion decisions. And it listed as the way that you would judge whether you could kill this child, the life and the health of the mother. And under the health, they included all sorts of things like emotional, physical health, but emotional, financial, educational. In other words, they just opened the floodgates. It is perfectly legal in all 50 states of the United States because this is a Supreme Court decision to kill a child right up until the moment that that child would normally be born. This last stipulation, mental health of course, was the camel's nose in the tent that made abortion as a fallback method of birth control possible. All a woman had to do to get an abortion was to say that having the unplanned baby would impinge on her happiness or peace of mind. The door to abortion on demand was now open. New York was among the first states to walk through it and by 1970 had the most liberal abortion laws in the country. The Supreme Court forced the rest of the United States to follow in 1973, citing the ALI's model penal code in its infamous Roe v. Wade decision. Do what thou wilt became the whole of the law.